Hello, everybody. Welcome to Intellectual Medicine. That's right. We've changed our name from Intellectually Speaking to Intellectual Medicine to really reflect the uh, essence of what we like to focus on. And that is really this global definition. Intellectual Medicine incorporates health, wellness, your sense of well-being. Today, we're going to talk about a few things. One of them is how much would you value a quality year of your life at? What dollar amount would you ascribe to a quality year? This is not a rhetorical exercise. That metric is used when it comes to determining the value of drugs that are coming to market. Now, gene therapy is very exciting, and there are areas of investigation, and new drugs have now been developed. Novartis has one coming to market that can have a profound effect potentially on the health and well-being of children. We'll talk about that today and its dollar amount. I'd also like to talk about a very disturbing trend. People are dying at a higher rate from heart failure, reversing a trend in reduction of death from heart failure. This began in 2017. Furthermore, the people who are dying are young, 35 to 64. What's going on? We'll tell you about that. And how about that sunscreen? Would you take that sunscreen and eat it? No. Well, it turns out it's getting in our blood. And is that safe? And should you still use it? We'll talk about that as well, these risk-benefit analyses. And finally, we do need to talk about, about obesity and the profound bias of obesity that takes place in society at large and afflicts doctors and can affect their ability to interact with patients when it comes to their well-being. It also affects insurance companies' lack of willingness to reimburse for drug therapy for obesity. It even has trickled down to affect the bias now is being projected against doctors who treat obesity. We'll share with you the case of a physician who's developed a very innovative approach to treating obesity with a 95% success rate. In fact, the doctor was so excited to educate people about this opportunity for treatment that he took it upon himself to promote it in the form of a radio commercial. You would think that such an innovation would be widely embraced by society at large and by doctors in particular. You might be surprised how the story ended. We'll tell you about that and about the fate of doctors who endeavor to treat obesity in some cases. But first, good news from Brunei. Shan, remember we are talking about Brunei. They were stoning gay people. Good news. They're no longer stoning them, Shan. No. They're, they're, they're simply putting them in prison and whipping them. It's a huge step forward. A very enlightened kingdom they are over there in Brunei. Are you kidding me? This people is still an outrage. There is a need to be aware internationally about what's happening to our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We take comfort in America as well. We should. We live in the greatest nation in the world. Let's never forget that. Let's never forget America is a fabulous place worthy of being protected. Our culture is not an accident. It's by design. Now, you hear a lot of grumbling about financial inequity, about the difference between the haves and the have-nots. What's really at stake, and this is from an article in the Wall Street Journal that I found very compelling. In fact, it's posted on our website. Isn't that work, Oshan, these articles? They do. So you can reference these articles on our website. The productivity gap is what they're talking about. The difference between high and low earners. Now, 
what really affects quality of life is not the relative differential between income earned in the top 10% and income earned in the median. What really matters is the, is the real wage. If you're making enough money to afford you a high quality of life, but somebody at the high end is making 10 times what you are, well, that may induce envy, but it doesn't corrode your quality of life. This is what I call the, the engines and the boxcars. So there are engines that drive economy, that create jobs, that create revenue for others. And there are boxcars. If your name is at the bottom of the check given to another person, congratulations, you're an engine. If you're getting a check with somebody else's name on it, congratulations, you're a functional and useful boxcar. But let's not disparage the engine, nor undervalue the boxcar. We need leaders. We need innovators. We need people that are enhancing productivity at a high level. Call it trickle-down economy if you like. I like to think of this as synergy. An engine without boxcars is not functionally useful. Vice versa, no benefit. So let's take a look at this productivity gap and inequality. In America, in 1997, there's something called the 90-50 split. And this is the difference between people in the top 10 percentile and people of the 50th percentile regarding income. Currently in America, the top 10% is $108,000 or more per year income. The median, $45,000. The differential, 2.5. So people in the median, or I should say the top 10% are making 2.5 compared to the median. In 1997, the differential was 2.2. So it is true that more income is occurring to the top 10% than the median. That's a relative problem. How are we gonna make the median raise their wages? And tax policy doesn't seem to be that effective. The 17 developed nations that track the statistic have had the same trend. Even our socialistic colleagues in Western Europe, Germany, France, England, they've had the same separation. The difference is that the US wage is higher than Germany by 6% and higher than in Britain, we're 17% higher in the median wage than Britain. Now think about that. Would you rather have a society where you could say, hey, the differential is less, but I'm making less money. The material quality of life of Americans in the median age, in the median income group is generally higher than Germans and generally higher than Britons as well but we can learn something from them. In Germany in particular, they have career tracks for non-college directed individuals. Not everybody benefits from, nor can, uh, benefit, nor can gain access to a collegiate education. It's true the economy is developing in a high tech arena and that these jobs by virtue of technological enhancement generate higher productivity. Productivity equals income. No productivity, no income gain. In order to be productive, you gotta have a job skill. So okay, you can be an engineer, you can start a business, you can generate productivity. Well, suppose you're one of those folks that's not gonna jump on the college train. Who's more productive in society? A college graduate who has a liberal arts degree or a guy and or gal who starts a new business? buys a pickup truck, buys a lawnmower and opens up a landscaping business, rents out a space 
and opening up a donut shop. They are engines. They are enhancing productivity. How about in Germany, where if you're not in a collegiate trajectory, you get a trade. They're going to target you for a trade. Ask you this, what good is a high school education nowadays in America? You come out with a high school degree, that's a good thing. You've demonstrated a certain work ethic, but you have no tangible skill set. We need people that can operate backhoes, electricians, and plumbers. These trades are withering. Furthermore, they're powerfully underrepresented by women. Shannon, would you ever think of being an electrician? I wouldn't. Why not? Isn't it a fun job? Driving on a truck? Physically, you could do it. You could wire things. Well, there's a reason why Shannon and other women would never think of it. It's so male-dominated. How do you get in the door? Here's my proposal. And by the way, this all connects to your health, and we'll get to that in a second when we talk about how much a quality year is worth. I say we take our universities, our land-grant universities, and we have vocational technical training within it. Women and men alike aspire to go to college. Good for them. There's nothing wrong with having liberal art educated electricians, plumbers, and backhoe operators. Imagine your, your university, University of Rhode Island, and you can go to the College of Technical Skill, and you can learn how to operate heavy equipment while you're studying Beowulf. I beg to argue that you'd see far more women entering the profession from that pathway because it's open to them and encouraged by them, right? If my child can go to college and get a college degree, and by the way, get a minor in electrical, in electricity or plumbing or construction, how awesome would that be? So let's rethink education instead of banging the same drum and paying for free college that's producing a lot more liberal arts kids that we don't know what the frig to do with, right? So this connects now you have productivity, that median wage can go up. People with a job skill that is marketable make more money. And now we're talking about something that's going to move the needle, not guaranteed income for people not to work, and not class envy being fomented by those who think that the top 10% are stealing your money. They're simply following their own path of higher productivity. Now, income gains freedom, and gains opportunity for health benefit. You can invest more in your health. There's a correlation between health, wealth, and percent body fat and weight. Um, we'll talk about obesity next or, or drug therapy expense. Which one do you want to do, Shan? Obesity. obesity. All right. So obesity, as we mentioned, is mired in bias. If there were a genetic test, if you could have a test done to see if you have a genetic predisposition for obesity, would you do it? Would such a genetic test have value? Well, it might, at least in the sense of framing the conversation. So such a test has been developed by researchers out of Harvard, and they have found a polygenetic marker that correlates with increased risk of morbid obesity and excessive weight gain. Now, you may th be thinking to yourself, who needs a test? Hop on a scale, it'll tell you the answer. Here's the relevant part in my view. The genetic test validates the medical basis of obesity. The medical basis. 2013, the American Medical Association declared obesity a metabolic disease state. 
in 2019, the medical community is still not there. Studies in the um, Journal of Internal Medicine, a study looking at physician attitude toward patients with obesity, found enormous bias against patients of excess weight. Discrimination coming from doctors toward patients, manifested by more insulting commentary toward them, by a negative impression using words like awkward, unattractive, ugly, and non-compliant with regard to the patients they're seeing. Now, how can some physicians that harbor these attitudes be effective in addressing obesity? They can't be. Combine that with the societal bias against people of weight, they make less money, they're looked at less favorably, and this negative attitude gets internalized and the obese people start to believe that they are less than they should be. It's a neglected medical condition. The insurance companies don't pay for weight loss drugs. Doctors, by and large, don't know how to treat it. That's why I became board certified in obesity medicine. And that's why we developed the intellectual medicine approach for weight loss. Remember that doctor I was telling you about, 95% success rate? Yeah, that's me, right? We developed the technique, 95% success rate. Dr. Souza does the same technique. Shannon Petteruti has the same skill set that we've cultivated over many years. Very happy about that. In fact, we declare that the obesity is a neglected epidemic. 40% of Americans are currently obese, many more overweight. We talked earlier about the heart failure rate going up. It's connected to obesity and diabetes, the strain on the heart. How about the neglect of minority communities? How about the fact that that death rate from heart failure is skyrocketing amongst people of color? And people of color are most vulnerable to obesity because of the way that foods are marketed to them. And the neglect, I dare say it, of the mainstream medical community has by and large marked themselves absent from engaging seriously and broadly in obesity treatment. These are the comments and these are the approaches that have engendered feedback on part of some of my colleagues. In fact, I'm currently defending myself against an accusation of unprofessional conduct registered by a colleague because of the things I have said about obesity specifically with regard to the way it's been ignored by the vast segment of society, the way it's been misconstrued, misdiagnosed, and inadequately treated. Do we have a cure for obesity? As close as you can get to it, folks, 95% success rate is fabulous. We use that term to summarize success in treatment. And that phrase, cure for obesity, has been reacted to by some of our critics as misleading. Our patients beg to differ. They're happy with the success that they're getting. Why do I share this with you? Because it's part and parcel of the bias against obesity. When I was growing up as a young doctor, you know what they called doctors who treated obesity, Shannon? They used to call them fat fryers. Think about that, fat fryers. Oh, you're gonna be a fat fryer. You're gonna be, what a pejorative statement. You're belittled because you're pursuing treatment of the most neglected and pervasive metabolic condition on the planet, certainly in America. It's nuts. It's crazy that anybody would criticize an innovator like me who's 
aspiring successfully to engage and treat obesity. It's crazy. It's a manifestation of the bias. But we fight on. We fight on because we believe in our patients and because we've seen the results. All cancer outcomes are worsened by obesity. A study in the radiographic journal, Shannon, indicated that doctors in radiology had a universally, uh, should say, a broadly held disdain for patients with obesity. Some of the terminology, right? When I was in my residency, a woman or man of significant weight would be referred to as a land whale. If you happen to be black, you were an orca. Have you ever heard that phrase? Never heard the phrase. Yeah, no, that was not uncommon. Oh, yeah, there's a big orca in room 235. It's got That was shorthand for a fat black woman in particular. I hope you're a little bit disgusted. These, these attitudes didn't disappear. They're still out there. And they need to be beaten back. And these attitudes infect not only the doctor's offices, but the patients that we treat. We won't rest until obesity has its place as a metabolic disorder that is commonly treated in a primary care doctor's office. If your doctor tells you you need to lose weight, find a new doctor to help treat your weight loss. Yes, it's self-evident in some cases weight loss would be beneficial. Far better for doctors to have a path forward. So here's what we're offering. If you're a doctor and you're tuned in, or if you're a patient, you can share this with your doctor. Have them contact us. We have a pathway forward and we can help your doctor help you. Our weight loss pathway is available to them. Our book, mm -hmm. our book's available to them. All the secrets, all the tricks, all the nutritional details and behavioral details that we have learned over the years will make available to any doctor interested in pursuing this pathway. They can do it. Heart failure rates will connect to this. Cancer's going up, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer. The lifespan of American has gone down two years in a row. True, the opioid epidemic is a component of that. But we maintain that the obesity epidemic is right alongside it. So quality years, yeah, I want those. You know, you know, we talk a lot at Intellectual Medicine about aspiring toward the 120-year lifespan. By the way, Shannon, that's another one of the complaints against me, the 120-year lifespan. Somehow, it's considered unprofessional on the part of some of my colleagues, mind you, not patients, to aspire to live longer. The fact that we happen to make 120 an aspirational goal is understood on the part of our patients as just that. You don't get to a new goal. You don't break an old paradigm. You don't innovate something without pioneering new turf. You don't get to that level unless you first dream you can and think and aspire to get there. Yeah, we aim at 120. I'm aiming at 120. I'll be 60 in a couple of weeks. Did you hear? It's my birthday coming up. So Facebook Live, we have an event coming up in the next couple of weeks. I like to call it 360. I will be attempting to bench press 300 pounds at or shortly after my 60th birthday. The point, folks, isn't to show off, wow, look at me, but rather to demonstrate preservation of function regardless of age. I don't think you'd mind some accolades. Though. I wouldn't mind some accolades. <laughs> All right. All right. There's a little bit of that in there. A little bit of that in there. But seriously, I'm going to, during this Facebook Live event to be announced, do we know when, when it's going to happen? We don't. We're going to stay tuned. We're going to we're going to let you know. During that, I will also be sharing with you some of my nutritional and training tips, especially for those of you 
that are middle-aged. And by middle-aged, I mean age, let's call it 60 to 80 as middle age. That's middle age in our world. You don't get to be called old until you're well past 80. So we're gonna, we're gonna share that with them because power is life is energy. Avoiding heart failure. You know, that study we talked about before, Shannon, 40 push-ups correlated with a lower risk of heart attack. That's pretty cool. Now, don't do push-ups right now. Pay attention. Watch this. You can do your push-ups after. I wonder if that was 40 in a row nonstop. I was just going to say, can you do like one every like 10 minutes? No, you can't. It's got, I'm, I'm going to declare it's got to be 40 in a row nonstop. You do 40 push-ups, you're not getting a freaking heart attack. Now, let's talk about that um, a quality year. So quality year is what is used by actuarials as they're contemplating the value of new drugs brought to market. And they peg a quality year as having a value of approximately one to $2 million. Now that metric is what helps guide the cost of therapy. Now, you know, we talk about big pharma on this show, sometimes in a negative sense about the way that they can manipulate things to oppress innovation of natural modalities. And certainly there is a bias in the mainstream of medicine against natural modalities. I believe there to be this bias. You can look at what happens to doctors who advocate micronutrient support and nutritional support for better health. Look at our chiropractic colleagues who are advocating nutritional and lifestyle enhancements of health or our naturopathic colleagues or osteopathic physicians who oftentimes will advocate nutritional micronutrient and supplements in favor of drug therapy. They're looked at in a diminutive way by a lot of mainstream doctors. So big pharma is a hand in that negative impression. The FDA works closely with them, in some cases, in a manner that suppresses innovation and choice. However, we do owe big pharma a debt of gratitude when they pioneer legitimate new and exciting breakthroughs. And Novartis has developed one. The drug is called Zogensma. And the drug is used to treat spinal muscle atrophy. It's a condition that afflicts approximately 500 people per year, newborns. Those who are born with this condition typically die before the age of two. There is no effective treatment. Enter Novartis with Zolgensma. It's a genetic therapy that can be implanted into a patient and so far has shown promise with life extension and reduction of symptom. Earlier people are treated, the better the effect seems to be. Here's the problem. We don't know how well or how long it will work. We know that it's costing the estimated price tag $2 million for the treatment. That's a little daunting. But let's put it in perspective. Two million for treatment in a two-year-old that would otherwise die without something. And it's the best thing we have. How much does it cost for an F1 bomber? You have any idea, Shan? How about 180 million? 180 million. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's a direct correlation. We've got to look at how we spend our money. I think insurance is there for the catastrophic event like having a child with spinal muscle atrophy. How would you like to have this therapy available and have your insurance company rebuff a claim? That ain't right. It's called shared risk and the insurance company should pay for this. Now, is it going to have durable benefit? It's uncertain.
but this represents a new model of care. Our healthcare system is built around chronic drug therapy. How much does dialysis cost per year, you're wondering? Why do I bring it up? Because there's a correlation. It costs, for dialysis alone, never mind the heart attacks, the infections, and the hospitalizations these people are prone to, $75,000 per year. Go 10 years on dialysis, you topped a million dollars. Add in the other drugs and supportive care, you're at two million. For somebody at the tail end of life, in many cases, holding on to a corroded quality of life, I'm not suggesting we turn off dialysis machines, but we have to look at these comparative values. Two million up front for a treatment that has a potential to preserve life of a child, I'm on board with that. We need to be creative and think of ways to make this um, tolerable to the payers, the insurance companies. One idea that's put, been put forth is another drug called Luxturna. Spark Therapeutics invented it. It's a gene therapy for retinitis pigmentosa and congenital amaurosis. Congenital amaurosis um, leads to progressive blindness in children. And this gene therapy can be implanted in the retina and has been shown to have beneficial effect. The promise looks favorable. The price tag is $875,000. However, this company, and I applaud them for this innovation, in 2.5 years after the therapy has been implanted, if it didn't work, think of a rebate. That's pretty cool. The medic. They're not, not going to be around. <laughs> Who's not? The company? Yeah. Well, if they sell the drug, they will. Well, I'm saying 2.5 years, they find out it doesn't work. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's a credit to them. They're at least exploring, I think, creative ways. Mm -hmm. So will they be around? Well, that can be addressed by having a trust fund set up a reserve capital to meet the obligation. The point here is that we've got to get used to the idea of these genetic, genetic innovations. And we need to have a conversation about cost of therapy. So the FDA is charged with approving drugs. Are they also charged with weighing the cost-benefit analysis? And should they be charged with making a decision based on the cost of the drug when it comes to market? Perhaps that should be factored in that equation. Very difficult topics. How much is a quality life, a year of life worth? And how do we define that? For those of, a, for those of us born with a genetically endowed progressive disorder, hope resides in innovation. And innovation in the form of some of these genetic therapies is enormously expensive. And it should be supported. We need to consider ways to support that. But for the rest of us, the rest of us born and living life in the moment, we want to preserve quality of life. We want to extend the youth span. I told you middle age goes up to 80, according to our definition in intellectual medicine. So as we summarize this podcast, this conversation, remember the components we always talk about in intellectual medicine. The cornerstones of extending youth. One, keep your body fat at its, at its ideal percent. For men, we target that 20% or less. For women, 30% or less. How do you know? You get a body analysis performed. Number two, get on your hormones. You must be on them at the right time of life. For men, no later than 60 in our opinion. For women, no later than 50. And women, do not neglect testosterone. 
Do you know what the laboratory range is, Shannon, for t normal testosterone in women? I do. I look at it every day. <laughs> That's right. Of course she knows. Shannon is an expert in hormonal therapy, anti-aging therapy, with a special emphasis in women's care. Shannon Pederuti is a nurse practitioner with extensive experience. I share that with you because there are not enough women expert in the field. Shannon is one of them. And if you would prefer to have this conversation about your sexual health, your hormonal health, and your life extension with a knowledgeable and experienced woman, Shannon Pederuti can fill that role. She knows the range of normal, zero to 75. Zero, what normal hormone level is none in any homo sapien? That's a reflection of the ignorance when with regard to testosterone support for women. How good is testosterone for women, Shannon? What are we seeing, the women that go on it? Brain gets better, muscles get better, libido gets better, strength gets better, mid-abdominal fat melts away. Testosterone is a critical hormone. The receptors are in just about every organ of your body, including your brain. Powerfully abundant in the brain. So often I'll hear a patient share with me that their brain has lost a step. And they, uh, they blame it on their life, on stress. They're getting older, the kids are leaving. Mom's sick, work is busy. The missing piece is the hormone. You get on the right hormone level, the brain sharpens up almost to a person because testosterone helps to accelerate the rate of neurotransmission in the brain, and the speed of electrical impulse correlates with sharpness of thought and recovery and um, recollection. So, correct percent body fat, get on your hormones. We advocate heavy metal testing. Unfortunately, the planet is polluted. It's going to stay that way. Lead, cadmium, and other pollutants abound. They get in our body. Sunscreen gets in our body. We've got to segue a bit, though. So hormones, percent body fat, watch for your toxins, and then antioxidant neutralization with controlling free radicals. You put these together. And we have seen our patients thrive. We have seen their function enhance. We believe these to be core, corner elements of anti-aging therapy. These are the innovative arenas of medicine. Let's not call it medicine anymore. Let's call it really healthcare. Remember, you don't have health insurance. You have sick insurance. And you don't go to the doctor to acquire superior health. You go there to eliminate symptoms and disease. You go there when things break by and large. Now that is an important, vital, time-honored role, but it's just not enough. In the moment, I'll turn 60 as you know, I feel great. I feel better at 60 than I did at 50. But I know what comes next. And if I don't take proactive steps to neutralize the effects of biological aging as best I can, it will accelerate more aggressively. I like to draw analogies to automobiles, Shan, because they're really objective and tangible. You ever see that like classic automobile riding down the road, sparkling in the sun, looking like it just came off a showroom floor? You know those antique cars? People go to car shows, they open the hood, they can look inside. That's us. Those cars are the intellectual medicine vehicles of the human species. 
the people that have taken the time, the knowledge, and the effort to nurture, maintain, and support their health internally, open the hood, heart and arteries look great, the brain is sharp. Externally, look at the body and the face, it's shining. It's not an accident that the Model T is still out there at a car show. Most of them aren't because most car owners neglect their vehicle. Most people don't take the full measure of attention to their health that they potentially could. A little bit of that is skepticism. All this anti-aging seems like a bunch of hooey. It seems like, I'm going to quote one of my other critics, Shannon, it seems like snake oil. Well, maybe, but we beg to differ. We've seen the fruits of it. So I'll leave you guys with a thought. It is summertime, right? And we're coming upon the time to protect your skin. Now we find that sunscreen is found in the blood after as brief as one day's worth of therapy. I don't know about you, but I'd prefer not to have sunscreen absorbing into my blood. Now, among the ingredients, oxybenzone is the one that most prominently gets in the blood. That's oxybenzone, O-X-Y-B-E-N-Z-O-N-E. Oxybenzone absorbs much more readily than other ingredients. It's been correlated with lower testosterone levels in men. It's been correlated with altered birth weight in the, in the children of women who use it. This has affected my thinking regarding sunblock, Shan. I know. The best sunblock is what? Shade. Mm -hmm. It's shade. A nice umbrella. Uh, nice uh, clothing, right? Sun repellent clothing. To the extent you're going to use sunblock, we advocate for minimal use, back of the neck, top of the ears, face. The rest of your body, just cover it up. And they have, don't they have clothes that do that, Shan? Yeah. What kind of clothes does, does that? There's a lot of clothes. <laughs> so you can Google what, sunblock clothes? Yeah, exactly. Do they really work? They do auto fit and some. You use those? I do. Now you use them on, on, on our kids, right? Mm -hmm. And they work great. They do, wear them anymore. <laughs> well, we, do, we can do our best. Mm -hmm. So watch out for the sunblock. You know, the uh, the cult of avoiding the sun, it leaves you with a dilemma. Should I get my vitamin D? Should I put on the shade? What we advocate for is using vitamin D as an oral supplement. We recommend 5,000 international units per day as being a safe dose for the vast majority of people and using shade to block your sun. So in closing, people, thanks for tuning in. Remember to love your neighbor, especially those that are battling obesity. Don't tell them they need to lose weight. They know it. And if you're struggling with your weight, then you need to find a source of treatment that will be effective and durable. And diet and exercise for the vast majority of people, just not fully adequate. We want to be mindful about the world around us and thoughtful as we contribute to the conversation regarding the income gap the growing movement towards socialism in some in America that are advocating for that approach. We need to think about the consequence of it really deeply before we put it into action and lose our ability to unravel it. Now, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, WPRO 99.7 FM. will be Facebook Live at the same time. I have a very special guest will be on the show, a gentleman who's fighting terminal cancer. will share with you his philosophy on life, which is really uplifting, as well as his experience in the course of his diagnosis and the treatment options being put in front of him. 
and his decision process and his how he came to decide to make vitamin C and mistletoe therapy part of what he chooses to do for his support. That's Saturday morning, 8 to 9, uh, Intellectual Medicine. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you next Wednesday at 12 o'clock noon. Bye now. Thanks, everybody. End stream. Thanks, love.